right, everybody. Welcome to episode four of the Light Bulb Factory, conversation centered on the church becoming the light of the world. Today, we're going to pick up our conversation from last week and talk about accidental discipleship. Now, we've created this podcast for one reason, to help us stay in touch during this time of COVID and quarantine. It's been going on for about three months now, and we're all a little bit of weary of it, even if it's not weary of us. Uh, and so I thought we could use a lighthearted moment here. Uh, we saw an article this week uh, about quarantine pickup lines. So uh, let's, uh, let's go through a couple of, of these, see if you have a favorite. Um, here's a, a personal favorite. Uh, you can't spell quarantine without U-R-A-Q-T. That's a pretty good one. Uh, well done, well done. Uh, another one here uh, is, is, baby, do you need toilet paper? Because I can be your Prince Charmin. Oh, whoa, it gets, hits a little close to home. Well, uh, the only person in the room here with me right now is Joao as he's recording this, and I bet he feels a little uncomfortable right now as if maybe, yep, now he's aud- he's nodding. Yes, he feels a little uncomfortable. But uh, you may be wondering, why, Ryan, do you, as a married uh, guy, are you looking into pickup lines? Well, my wife sent these to me, okay? Uh, so uh, good news, pickup lines don't have to stop after you you get married. They can keep going. So uh, there you go. Well, today, as I said, we are, we are talking about uh, accidental discipleship. We were pairing this episode with our uh, discussion last week with Jack and Tyler. You can go back and listen to that if you haven't heard it yet. As a reminder about our format, uh, what we're doing is we're pairing these episodes in weeks of two, one, one week having uh, more of a discussion, and then the following week doing more of a deep dive into that uh, the content of that discussion. And so uh, today we're going to get to flesh out more of what we mean by accidental discipleship. We didn't get a lot of time to really define and clarify what we meant last week, but we will today. Uh, So once again, I'm going to base this episode on a book, uh, and the book for this week is by James K.A. Smith. It's called Desiring the Kingdom, and uh, this is a a book I think was written in 2009. It's the first part of a three-part series. And uh, I would encourage you to look into it uh, if you find this episode interesting. There's actually a more popularized version of it, too, called uh, You Are What You Love. Um, that's a little bit of an easier read. So uh, check into either of those if you find this, uh, this interesting. But uh, one indicator for me that this was an important book that I needed to be paying attention to was that uh, I read this in the early COVID period, uh, probably April or something like that. And uh, after I read it, I read three other books that in a row all referenced back to this book that all uh, were influenced and, um, you know, were shaped by the thought of Smith in this book. And only one of those did I really know that was going to happen. The other two were were surprises. And so uh, anyway, I think that speaks to this being an influential work. uh, And I think this is there are a lot of important lessons that we can learn from as the church uh, today. So to, uh, to start off, let's, let's dig into this concept of accidental discipleship. Now, this is probably an unfamiliar phrase to most of us because we tend to think of discipleship as a spiritual term, uh, as something that happens through the church. Um, and, you know, the methods for discipleship may vary, but our basic definition of discipleship is usually being formed into the likeness of Christ in some ways. Uh, but we, we don't often have an imagination for what discipleship means outside of church stuff. Uh, and so what I want to do today is I want to latch onto that word formed, okay, being formed into the likeness of Christ. And, uh, and I want to begin to notice the way that we are, are being formed throughout our lives as a whole, not just as it has to do with, with church stuff. Um, and so when we take this sort of broader use of the term discipleship, what we begin to acknowledge is that we are being discipled 
uh, to see the world and exist in the world in a certain way all the time throughout the daily habits of our ordinary lives. And, and oftentimes this happens in ways that are counter to our discipleship to Christ, uh, which is why we need to uh, discuss it. So Smith is going to talk about um, three things that disciple us without our awareness. There are you know, probably hundreds of examples, but three that he talks about in his book are the mall, uh, the flag, and the university. Uh, we're going to dig into those in a little bit. They're institutions of formation, he says. Um, but really, just to, to nail this home at the beginning, this, this really idea that we can be discipled uh, accidentally without you know, clicking the terms of agreement box you know, uh, to get our consent necessarily, this, this is a scary possibility for us because uh, what it implies is that we can faithfully attend all the church events we want, uh, Sunday worship, community group, uh, community potluck, uh, and all of those can, can, can contribute somehow to our discipleship, and yet we can still be out-discipled by our culture despite doing all the church events that we want. Um, and so the solution to this, we might think, is just, well, let's spend more time doing church stuff than, quote, secular stuff. Uh, but that's, that's, not, uh, that's not the solution we're going to run into today. Time is part of it, um, but it's actually a little more complicated than that. Um, and so today, for starters, we need to learn to, to see the ways in which we're being accidentally discipled, oftentimes without our consent or even our awareness. Um, so let's start at the beginning. Where did things go wrong? Uh, well, first of all, our churches tend to have um, faulty ideas about how people change. Uh, and so when we get to discipleship, we're uh, using what, what Smith would call a faulty philosoph- philosophical anthropology. Uh, we're misunderstanding what the human person is. And so we have faulty ideas about how people change. You see, most of us were brought up to think that if we believe the right things, we will act in the right ways, okay? If we believe the right things, we will act in the right ways. And therefore, all of our resources that are aimed at discipleship in the church and that help us grow spiritually with God um, are, uh, are often aimed at helping us believe those right things. Uh, they're aimed at the mind so that we can b- begin to live the right way. Uh, so in our imagination, the flow uh, supposedly goes from information uh, that leads to habits, Uh, But what Smith wants to do in this book is to say, hold on, this is actually not how being a human works, okay? Uh, That that actually the process is much more complicated than that. You can't just get new information and let it leak down into new habits. And so Smith is uh, heavily relying on the work of Augustine in his book, Desiring the Kingdom. And uh, Augustine, for those of us us that don't know, was a 4th and 5th century early church father who um, wrote extensively in, in this particular area about desire. And, uh, and so Smith is relying on his work a lot. What Smith and Augustine want to say is that the problem with this framework of information leads to habits is it makes an assumption that we are rational beings, all right? And sorry for the newsflash, but we, we are not uh, rational beings. Ultimately, they, they want to say we are desiring beings instead. So not rational, but desiring beings. What this means in a nutshell is that you and I are not propelled by logic, ultimately, uh, but we are propelled by what we want, okay? Uh, that we are driven by our desires. Uh, and so if you want to know what you want, in life, uh, then what you have to do is look at your habits. Your habits reveal what you want. They reveal your desires. And so Smith encourages uh, the reader to do a self-inventory, a sort of audit of practices 
and this may be easier to do with, with somebody else for starters, somebody that you live in close proximity with and spend a lot of time with. You can uh, see their ex- eccentricities and the way they do things from afar, or you might do it with yourself. But e- either way, it's the idea that you would record, uh, either written down or just in your head, your, your daily habits, uh, how you spend your time, what you drift toward when you have a free moment. And as we sort of do this self-inventory assessment of our actual habits, what we should find is that our habits reveal our loves, um, that, that habits are not neutral. Uh, Smith says they get hooked up into desires that point us at something ultimate. And so you might, for example, have a, a habit of working out. Every morning you get up at 6 o'clock and you, you go to the gym and you work out, and, uh, and that there's a certain desire that's attached to that habit. It's a desire to have a certain body, and there might be different motivations for that. Uh, but, or you may have the habit of uh, spending a lot of time on social media or something like that. And, uh, and that is attached to a desire as well, either a desire to get a lot of information or a desire to present yourself in a certain way uh, or a, you know, a desire to stay in, in the loop with your friends and family. Um, and so habits and desires are always uh, connected in some way. And so as we look at our, our habits, as we do this self-inventory, uh, he wants us to ask the question, what does this habit say about what I love? Uh, that's a really helpful tool, I think, that each of us can use. Um, and oftentimes what we find, uh, we can talk about this in terms of identity, is that uh, we watch our habits and it reveals to us the places in life that we are placing our identity and what we think is most important, what we want to be defined by in life. So as an example, let me use 15-year-old Ryan, okay, uh, who most of you didn't know, but 15-year-old Ryan wanted to be a basketball star, all right? Uh, now, before you laugh too much, uh, I was tall for my age at the time, okay? I could actually jump pretty high uh, at the time, right? Um, and so this desire of, of being a, a basketball star um, w- is tied to a vision of the kingdom, Smith would say. And in other words, uh, what he would say is that essentially I was dreaming of a world and this is pretty true, where everyone sees how amazing I am at basketball and they basically praise me for it, right? That's my vision for the kingdom, okay? And this language of kingdom may seem odd, but it's strategic because uh, what it indicates is that I'm imagining a world uh, where instead of people worshiping Jesus, they're worshiping me. They're praising me for how great I am at, at basketball, all right? And we all have things like this in our life uh, that we want, um, our desires are always connected, Smith says, to a vision of the good life. And so what we do is we look at what we desire, we find that thing, and that equals for us what we think the good life looks like, all right? Um, so we have a desire that's connected to a vision of the good life, and as we've been saying a little bit, this is also connected to our habits. All these things are connected. So for 15-year-old Ryan and desire to be a basketball star, there were many habits that were kind of reinforcing this desire, right? Got home in the evenings. I want to watch the, the San Antonio Spurs. Um, when it comes around to video games, I want to play uh, basketball video games. Uh, I have a, a hoop in the driveway, and most evenings you could find me out there shooting hoops. Um, I bought basketball shoes uh, that I got excited about. I would started wearing basketball shorts. I had posters up on my wall of basketball players. I, I bought a couple jerseys, you know, with, uh, with my own money, right? And so uh, all these habits uh, were helping form me into a person uh, that had a desire to be a basketball star. Uh, there is a communal element to this too. I get to the lunchroom with my friends and we talk about basketball, either practice that day or what happened in the Spurs game last night. And all of this for me was helping craft a certain identity. Um, 
And so the, these habits and these desires, this vision of the good life is all very, very connected. And, and part of the point here is that uh, I didn't get here by reason, okay? Uh, now, if new information leads to new habits, uh, that doesn't bear out to be true here. Um, I didn't just sit down one day and say, well, you know what? Logically, I'm relatively tall, and I can jump relatively high, and, you know, uh, I'm not good at football, and, you know, I'm not good at baseball, so by process of elimination, I think I should start to become a basketball, you know? No, like, this was not a calculated intellectual decision, right? Uh, As if my mind was teaching my body. Uh, Instead, uh, the body teaches the mind, right? And so I was led to this place here by my desires, This is why Augustine says we are not thinking things, we are desiring beings, all right? And so these desires, uh, they don't just stand alone. They're always connected to these bodily habits, Uh, the video games, the driveway hoops, um, the posters, all these sorts of things. Uh, They work in a cyclical fashion. The the desires lead to our habits, the habits lead to our desires. Uh, The more I shoot hoops in the driveway, the more I dreamed about this vision of becoming uh, a basketball star. And so... Um, that's how it works. The mind didn't teach the body. The body teaches the mind. So I would encourage you to do this kind of audit on yourself uh, to, to think through what are, uh, what are the habits that I have that I go through every day and what do they reveal about my loves? What do they reveal about my vision of the good life? In this particular case, I was discipled, you could say, into wanting to be a basketball star. Now, there are a lot worse things you could be discipled into, of course, uh, but it's also true that in these moments, I was finding my self-worth and self-understanding, my identity in the pursuit of such a goal. And uh, the problem with that is that when it crumbled, and it did eventually crumble, uh, that I crumbled too. And uh, and God wants something better for us than that. God wants us to not get caught up within these things that don't have to be ultimate. He has better plans and uh, better purposes for us. And so that's why it's important that we kind of identify these habits and our desires and how they're... Uh, discipling us away from the kingdom of God and towards a different vision of the good life. So uh, Smith, as I mentioned earlier, wants to talk about three, uh, three items or institutions that, that uh, are particularly good in the modern day at discipling us uh, without our consent and awareness. They're the mall, the flag, and the university. So let's uh, let's talk about each of those just a little bit. Um, so the mall, uh, first of all, when you when you step into it, if you've ever been to a shopping mall, you know that immediately you're receiving a proliferation of of messages, of advertisements, and discounts, and deals, and, and pictures, and salespeople. Proliferation of messages, not just written, but visual, sensual, emotive. There is a, a calculated effort, right, to form you into a consumer. Um, and a lot of these various vendors, they're not just trying to get you to buy their product. Uh, they're really trying to get you on a deeper level to create, to become a worshiper of their product or of their brand or of their culture that they're promoting. Um, because they don't just want a one-time buy, they want a continual customer out of you. Um, and so a common marketing technique is really... Uh, is to extend an invitation to build an identity around that particular product. Um, they want you to be in the inner circle of people who has this product. They want you to find community, as artificial as it is, with other people who have this product with you. I don't know why you need to find community with people that wear the same watch or jacket or, or shoes, and yet we're told that somehow you can have that with other people. Um, and so the desires that, that they're trying to cultivate 
uh, and you are connected to a vision of the good life, right? It's a good good life that when I have all the latest products and I get to be happy like the people on the billboard, right? And so uh, Smith writes that the marketing industry understands what the church often doesn't, that we are not thinking things, but we are desiring creatures. And, uh, and so he, uh, he uses Victoria's Secret as an example, a particularly, you know, um, vivid example of, of this. Uh, I think you can see how advertising and marketing sort of plays into this, both towards men and towards women in the ways that we've been talking about. And, uh, and uh, Smith somewhat cleverly says, Vic, uh, Victoria is in on Augustine's secret, which, you know, good joke, uh, Smith. Um, but it's the, it's the secret that we are not thinking things, but desiring creatures. And if, so if you can capture that desire, um, then you can, you, can, you can make some money. Um, and so Smith's a, Smith asks, he says, what if we didn't see passion and desire as the problem, but rather sought to redirect it? And so that's an interesting question because we might think, okay, they're trying to get at our passion and desires. We need to, uh, through the church, for example, give the right information and say, hey, that's bad. This is good instead. And if we present people with the right information, then they'll be able to stop the passions and desires. Uh, but Smith says, what if we didn't see passion and desire as the problem, but we sought to redirect it, okay? Uh, and so there's a, a famous C.S. Lewis quote that comes really well into this moment right here from The Weight of Glory. Um, and Lewis says, it, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. So in other words, what Lewis is saying, he's, he's following Smith here, and they're saying that desire is not the problem. It's a matter of redirecting our desires to the better and right things uh, towards God and towards the ultimate purposes that we were created. And so uh, Smith wants to say that, that all three of these things, the mall, the flag, the university, which we'll get to in a minute, all three of them, uh, have a religious nature, uh, and that sounds weird at first because there's not a worship service happening in those in those places. But what he means by that is that um, each of these things wants to form us uh, into worshipers of of something. That each of these things is vying for our passions. That they are meant to form us into certain kinds of people. He says into disciples of rival kings and patriotic citizens of rival kingdoms. Um, and so Smith, uh, staying on the mall for a minute here, draws some parallels between uh, the mall and the church. And when he, when he put it like this, for me, it gets a little creepy uh, because it's, it's just amazing how true this is. The mall has its own form of evangelism called marketing. It has its own form of outreach and billboards and pop-up ads on your computer. Um, it has, if you think about those kiosks that are down the center aisle of, of the mall that are inviting you to touch and to taste and to smell, those are the rituals of the mall. Um, then there's the TV ads that show hip and happy people who are, are illustrating the, the good life that we can enter in if we just have this product. Uh, and so anyway, it goes even so far, Smith says, is there's a, really a gospel that's, that's happening here, uh, that the mall is proclaiming good news. Um, you could say that the good news of consumer capitalism, and it comes with the definition of sin, a hope of redemption, and a vision of human flourishing. So the definition of sin, according to the mall, is I'm broken, therefore I shop. Uh, so in other words, this idea that uh, things aren't working for me, I'm sad or not feeling like I should, and so maybe if I go shop, it will be fixed. 
there's also a hope of redemption. Um, Smith calls this, I shop, therefore I am, kind of playing off of Descartes' uh, line there. He calls it a form of therapy that, that, um, that basically says, I can be complete if I, uh, if I run away from these broken feelings I have, I can fix them through, through shopping. Um, and then lastly, he says, a vision of human flourishing uh, it's this idea it presents to us that this can go on forever, that this can become the new normal for your life, the new way that you find happiness. And of course, he says the problem is that this, uh, this is completely unsustainable. Um, you think about all the things that are being sold in a mall, and uh, we start to ask sometimes, where do these come from? Uh, you know, uh, the production of, that goes into the mall requires massive consumption of natural resources and cheap uh, exploitative labor. Uh, he says that the U.S. Um, only has 5% of the world's population but consumes 23 to 26% of the world's energy. Sometimes we ask, where did all of this come from? But the mall prefers invisibility uh, because that's necessary for the sustainability of the system. So Smith says um, the, the process is don't ask, don't tell, just consume. Um, and so, uh, anyway, is it possible to go inside a mall and just buy a pair of shoes and leave? Yes, I, I'd like to think that I have at some point. Uh, and yet the point is that what seems like a neutral and innocent activity, going to the mall, is not so neutral and innocent that we are actually being accidentally discipled in those moments. And it's worth mentioning that it's not accidental on the part of the mall. Um, and so that's, uh, that's the first example. The second is, this, is the flag. Uh, the flag for Smith represents the story of nationalism, uh, that we are being asked to give undivided devotion and loyalty to our country, now, as a, as a follower of Christ, you know, I think we can be grateful and thankful for the freedoms that we have and those that offer them to us, uh, but our undivided devotion and loyalty goes only towards Jesus, and, uh, and yet um, sometimes these loyalties are going to come into conflict with one another, loyalty of country, loyalty to Christ, and we have to remember that we uh, cannot serve two masters. Um, and so Smith um, tells us that uh, he has this quote where he says, Many Christians experience no tension between the gospel according to America and the gospel of Jesus Christ because subtly and unwittingly the liturgies of American nationalism have so significantly shaped our imagination that they have trumped other liturgies. They trumped our formation to Christ. Um, and so the question here is, how do the powers that be um, attempt to disciple us towards a loyalty toward our country? Uh, and once again, des uh, habits and desires are connected. So all we have to do is look at the bodily habits that are meant to form our desires. And it goes all the way back to elementary school. So you think about uh, saying the Pledge of Allegiance daily in school, uh, stand up, put your hand over your heart, pledge your allegiance. Um, you think about uh, high school football games, college football games, or where the national anthem is, is, is uh, saying you stand and you put, once again, your hand over your heart and you maybe even sing. Um, maybe there's a flyover by, uh, you know, of an airplane and something is felt viscerally in that moment here. Uh, these are all bodily habits that are meant to form our desires and our allegiance, we might say, um, towards, uh, towards uh, in a direction other than towards Christ. And once again, we can have appreciation for our country. We can have an appreciation for the freedoms we have. But oftentimes it's uh, shaping us to, uh, to give our loyalty to something in an ultimate sense. Um, that, that trumps all other identities. Um, Stanley Hauerwas uh, has a line where he says that Friday night high school football is the most significant liturgical event in Texas. And uh, there's probably a lot of truth to that from what I can tell. Um, 
And so these bodily habits that we have, um, whether it's uh, the Pledge of Allegiance the, and, or the National Anthem, that they're meant to create worshipers out of us, uh, that we have a vision of the good life uh, where we are loyal citizens and patriots of the greatest nation on earth. That's what we're being discipled to, uh, to believe and think and how to live. And, uh, and so once again, the challenge here uh, with the flag is to become uh, aware of how we're being discipled towards this nationalism. And, uh, and discipled towards putting our ultimate allegiance there. Uh, the last and final area he talks about is the university. Uh, most of you are students, so I think you'll resonate with this. Uh, and he talks about how college isn't really about academics. I mean, it is, but, but the college experience is so much of what, uh, of what peop- a lot of you, even, you guys even get excited about uh, on campus. Uh, and supposedly, colleges are places uh, that are spaces for the objective pursuit of truth, and yet college is so much more than the classroom. It's frat houses and it's football games and it's dorm life. And uh, Smith wants to say that all of these things are powerful tools that shape us, uh, that aim at our desires and our loves in certain ways. And so uh, he gives us uh, three examples here of sort of Greek life and of football and dorm life. We can just briefly touch on these. First of all, with Greek life, he talks about how Um, Greek life uh, shapes us to place ourselves within a hierarchical map of of the student body, and it teaches us to make the relationships that we're building within that group, uh, that they're important because they will be useful later in life. Uh, They're a means to an end, maybe some sort of networking that will land us a job later in life. Uh, Now, look, I was in a fraternity in college, so I'm not uh, dogging on, on Greek life completely. The lesson is not don't do it, uh, but the lesson is uh, to acknowledge how they shape us. Uh, and certainly things are designed in a certain way to help us climb the ladder of life. We're being discipled in that direction. When it comes to football, something that maybe more of us can, can resonate with, uh, it talks about how we're being trained into a competitive spirit and a thirst for glory uh, that is easily antithetical to the kingdom of God. And here at Baylor, uh, I think we know what it's like. We've been through a lot of troubles with our football program in the last few years. We know what it's like to, to gain the whole world and lose our soul, so to speak. Uh, and so, really, it's the idea that football can disciple us to see, hey, here's an opportunity for my school to, to have a crafted identity to be put on the map in a special and unique way. And yet the question is, at what cost, right? Um, and so uh, we have to see how even something like a football program, uh, even as a casual fan in the stands, can be discipling us in a certain way. Um, and then there's dorm life, where Smith says, uh, provides opportunities to learn nocturnal habits of cliquishness. I love that phrase. Or, uh, or other habits uh, of avoidance and isolation. And before you start to say, does this guy just like hate fun or something? Uh, really, the idea here is that, once again, he wants us to see how we're being formed in every aspect of our life through things that seem uh, innocent or neutral. Uh, in each case, we're being formed, in this case, towards cliques or towards procrastination. Uh, we're being formed in a certain way. And the point is not to go live out in the desert somewhere so that you can just avoid being contaminated. Uh, the point here is that most of us are unaware of the way that we're being formed, and we need to become aware um, and, and so that we can, we can do something about it. So what do we do about it? Uh, now we've focused a lot on how we're being formed. Uh, what do we do about the fact that we are being formed? Uh, part of it is just to recognize that we are being discipled all the time, but what else can we do? And this is where Smith says that we need to undergo uh, counter-formation. 
all right? That if we are being discipled all the time, we need to uh, take up uh, some counterformation that can form us back into the way of Jesus, right? Uh, and so the way forward, the way to do that counterformation is not uh, just to get better information, get the right ideas in our head, right? Uh, so that the right information can lead to the right habits. Uh, no, because once again, the mind does not train the body. The body trains the mind. Uh, and so we need a different way of being formed instead. So we'll, uh, we'll take this first on kind of an abstract level, and then we'll get, we'll get more and more practical. Um, Smith says that the alternative to the right information leads to the right habits is a four-stage process uh, where we, first of all, number one, take up new communal practices, that number, and, and number two, new habits, that number three, lead to new desires, and four, aim to, uh, that, that lead us to a new vision of the kingdom. And this is how he says people actually change, that the body trains the mind. Uh, if you want that in a, a little simpler nutshell, uh, we could say this, is that, that we need new habits that will form new desires. New habits that will form new desires uh, that are aimed at the kingdom of God. Uh, so I read a, another book recently that gives a really helpful example that, uh, that puts this into perspective. There's an author that talks about how his son really out of the blue developed an interest in volcanoes. He even called it an obsession with volcanoes. And so he started to talk about them all the time, and he started to watch videos and show them to his parents and research books and all these things. And all of a sudden, this kid was just obsessed with volcanoes uh, to the point that, that their family the next summer went on a vacation out, out west, and they spent a whole day uh, going to visit a volcano. And, uh, and the author writes that it wasn't just to entertain uh, his son, that he and his wife and his other kids also started to love volcanoes, that this son's love of volcanoes became contagious and all of a sudden started to spill over so that they loved volcanoes too. Even when he wasn't around, they started talking about volcanoes and how amazing they were. Uh, And so here's how this process works. Uh, This is David Swanson that writes. He says, uh, The practices of reading about volcanoes, checking out books, and watching nature videos had shaped our habits. Now, we were talking about volcanoes, even when my son wasn't around. All that discipleship had oriented my desires and imagination in a new direction. I wanted to be at the volcano too. This is the power of leadership. Um, And so Swanson talks about how his son discipled him into loving volcanoes, that it was contagious, right? And the categories that he used there are the ones we just talked about a moment ago in that four-stage process. That there, first of all, there were new communal practices, uh, checking out books from the library, watching nature videos, and there were, secondly, new habits um, that they were start, started talking about volcanoes all the time, even when the sun wasn't around. And all of a sudden, those led, third, to new desires, that now they had a desire to go see the volcano when they hadn't had that before. Um, and so this is kind of how this process works uh, fleshed out. And so next, I think we can talk about how the church can, can uh, use this as a strategy to counterform people into the way of Jesus, right? And so Smith, first of all, wants the church to embrace liturgy. Uh, now, most of us, or some of us think about liturgy, uh, if we didn't grow up in a liturgical church, as the boring stuff that we do in communal worship where you recite things all together and maybe it feels, uh, for some of us, forced or fake or empty. And sometimes that can be fair. Sometimes it just is empty. Uh, but when done right... And when properly explained, it can really be, be powerful, Smith wants to say. Um, and so all of the things that are done in a worship service that have to do with bodily habits, like reciting a creed together 
whether it's kneeling or whether it's taking the Lord's Supper every week, whether it's the colors that, uh, that fill up the sanctuary that correspond to the part of the church calendar that we're currently in, or whether it's lighting an Advent candle, uh, that all of these things are embracing the truth that the body trains uh, the mind, uh, that our desires are formed through our body. Um, and so we are, in those moments, being formed into the Christian story, away from the secular story that attempts to shape our desires and our loves each and every week. Um, that's how liturgy is supposed to function and work. On a more personal example, uh, kind of a individual spiritual practice here, uh, recently I've tried to take up the, the practice of kneeling every day uh, when I pray, just one time through the day, take a moment to kneel when I pray, uh, kind of on the edge of my bed or something like that. And, um, and certainly I recognize that you don't have to kneel. It's God hears your prayers uh, no matter what. Of course he does. But what I've started to realize is that when I kneel, that it does something to me, that it shapes me, that it orients my heart in a certain way, that now uh, as I take up this posture, I start to think of Jesus as my King and as my Lord, uh, that it cultivates humility in my heart. It reminds me who God is and who I am not. And in that moment right there, the the body is training the mind, right? That my desires are being formed. And uh, and the same thing is, is what Smith wants to say is what's happening communally uh, in a church when we do liturgy together. Another example of this is, would be Sabbath. Uh, over the last year or more, I've really tried to, to take each week a 24-hour period where you know, I stop working, stop doing what stresses me out, and really focus on delighting in God and, and doing things that I enjoy with the people I love. And this is not my natural impulse at all. My impulse is typically go, 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 be efficient, be productive, uh, but Sabbath is a bodily habit that's training me to slow down, to appreciate life, to savor it, to remember that I'm not in charge of the world, that it doesn't need me to keep going to keep spinning, that God can run the world by himself. Uh, and so this is a habit that's training my desire to want a slower, more peaceful life uh, when my bodily impulse is to do the very opposite. And I'd say that in the time that I've been doing Sabbath, I found that to be true, that now I want to live a slower, more peaceful life. Um, I want that more than I did before. And so uh, lastly here, last implication of, of what a church can do uh, towards counterformation. Uh, you know, with our college ministry, we're trying to think through this right now of how can we form students in a way that counterforms them uh, opposite of the formation they're receiving every day, uh, the way they're accidentally being discipled in their culture. And, uh, you know, when it comes to the fall, we're, we have some plans to... Uh, to do some new exciting things. We, uh, we want to have an opportunity for daily discipleship so that every day there's something you could show up to um, that will give you a chance to, to meet with other people in our college group and connect and go through some sort of spiritual practice that will help form you into the way of Jesus. And, um, and so there are opportunities every day, which means uh, some of you may want to jump in all the time. Some of you may have a more limited ability to jump in. But regardless, there's going to be an invitation that's open uh, every day to come be formed in community, be oriented towards the kingdom of God, come be counterformed to the way that you're being formed naturally and accidentally uh, in your everyday life. Uh, and so that's some pretty exciting stuff. You can stay tuned and we'll have uh, some more info on that as we get a little bit closer to the fall. Um, but today, I hope this has been a hopeful introduction to this idea of accidental discipleship. I just want to encourage you to think about the way that you are being accidentally discipled, whether it's things like the mall or the flag or the university, um, to, uh, to think about those habits and what they reveal about your loves, and to maybe think about some counter habits that you could take up. Maybe it's things like kneeling prayer or Sabbath 
what are those things that you can cultivate that will orient your desires toward the kingdom of God and away from other visions of the good life? All right, that's all for episode four of the Light Bulb Factory. Uh, looking forward to coming back next week and having another discussion with more friends. So uh, tune in next time. In the meantime, if you would leave us a, a review, give us a five-star rating would be great, or uh, share this with some friends and family. We'd love to have more people know what we're doing here so they can join and become part of this journey. 